Matthews West Campus, I am so excited today to welcome back Stephen Phelan to preach in our Beyond series as we journey through the book of Acts. I'm actually preaching today at Robbins Air Force Base at the chapel services, so pray for me, and I'm certainly praying for you. Stephen and his wife Bradford and their four children have been a part of our church for the last few years. They're an awesome family. Stephen is the chief pastoral officer at Movement Mortgage, and we are so honored to have him come and preach today. Would you give a warm New City welcome to Stephen Phelan? Good morning, New City. Love you guys. What a joy to be with you on Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to the dads in the house. And you know, if you've been uh, in some other churches, you may have experienced this pattern. On Mother's Day, we lift up the mothers. And on Father's Day, we bash the dads. Not in New City. Today, we are going to celebrate the dads who are here, man, you may feel like a deadbeat dad. You may feel like, man, I'm struggling. Welcome to the club. I understand it. I am a dad uh, as well. And some, some, for some of us, Father's Day is a hard day, uh, either wanting to be a father or experiencing the wounds of a father. But the, here's the good news. We actually have an extraordinary father in heaven. And he pours out extraordinary love on us. So for the dads among us who feel like, man, struggling, we have an extraordinary father who longs to pour out his spirit on us. And so this morning, that's the theme. We're going to be looking at ordinary people like you and like me, moms and dads and students and strugglers among us who experience an extraordinary God. And the way that I'm going to help you stay awake is when I say ordinary people and point to myself, I'm going to point to you and you're going to say extraordinary God. So let's practice. Ordinary people, but we're actually going to say it like we mean it. So ordinary people, now we're talking because we have an extraordinary God who is on the move and longing to fill ordinary people like us with his power and his presence and his provision and his faithfulness. Because the reality is, is we feel ordinary a lot, don't we? We have ordinary laundry that just keeps piling up. We have ordinary bills that just keep piling up. We have ordinary sicknesses that just keep happening. We have these ordinary things that happen like death, like we're going to die. And in 30 years, no one's going to remember us, especially not 100 years from now. We're ordinary. However, ordinary people, we have an extraordinary God who loves to reveal his power, his provision in ordinary people because he gets so much more glory the more ordinary we are, the more extraordinary he is in his life. As we are weak, he is strong. And so this morning is about ordinary people who experience an extraordinary God. And we're going to see that through the lens of the Antioch church. Now, this church, I mean, it, it, it was crazy. I texted Chris and said, bro, I, you're an amazing man, because if I was setting the sermon series, I would have been preaching on this text. I never would have given this text to somebody else. But Chris, being the humble guy he is, is allowing me to preach on the Antioch church. This is a Hall of Fame church. 
This is one of the top five most influential churches. And really what you're gonna see happens is the, the center of Christendom takes a shift from Jerusalem to Antioch because of the, the powerhouse church that we're about to look at here in Antioch. And as we do, I hope that the Antioch church begins to infect and affect the dreams of New City Church, the life of New City Church. And not only our church, I hope this church affects our houses, our individual homes, and, and also the Capital C Church here in Charlotte, as we're thinking about it. This church needs to get inside of each one of us, ordinary people. That's what we need this morning. And so we're gonna look at the way an extraordinary God works in three different ways. And the first one is the way he works in tragedy. And he takes the ordinary tragedies of our lives and he turns those into triumph. This is what our God does. He takes tragedy and he turns it into God's triumph. We're gonna see that in verses 19 through 21 of our story. We're gonna pick up in the story here in Acts and we're going through the book. It says, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. So we see what happens. Tragedy strikes. Persecution strikes. Remember back in Acts chapter 7, what was going on there was that Satan stepped in and Satan said, ah, I've got an evil little plan. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to take out this guy who has an amazing name. His name is Stephen. And this guy is full of wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's leading and he's the most influential leader there. And Satan's strategy is to take out the most influential guy, and straight Satan's strategy becomes God's triumph. And what we see in Acts chapter 7 is that Satan kills Stephen. And then Acts chapter 8 says, and they were spread everywhere throughout the region, preaching the gospel everywhere they went. Bam! Take that, Satan. There you go. Your tragedy becomes God's triumph. And here's what you need to know about Acts chapter 8. If you go back and read it, what it says is that everyone was spread except the apostles. The super Christians, the stud Christians, the apostles, guess what? They stayed behind. The disciples and the apostles stayed in Jerusalem and the ordinary folk, you and I, all the ordinary people got sent out by the persecution and scattered, and everywhere they went, they just couldn't get enough of the good news of Jesus Christ. Life was really bad if you looked at it on the outside, but so good on the inside that they couldn't stop sharing the good news of Jesus. Now, these ordinary people, guess what they had? The Word of God and the Spirit of God and a commitment to go and make disciples wherever they were. That's what became extraordinary. The word of God and the spirit of God and making disciples. They didn't have Jay Nicholson on guitar. I mean, some of you do this. I do this when, you know, when we're singing and it, the lights are out. Man, I'm singing with all I got as loud as I can. And what I hear is, is Jay's voice. And I'm thinking, it's happening. 
I'm getting the voice of Jesus. I don't hear myself at all. Sanctification is going on. I'm being conformed to the image of Christ. And then Monday happens, and I, I sing in my car, and I'm back to myself. But it's, they didn't have a J on guitar. They didn't have Chris Payne up here preaching. This was just ordinary people like me and you who got scattered out and said, Jesus is good. I got the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the power of God, and I'm going to make disciples. And as they did, this extraordinary thing happened in Antioch. They were, they were beginning to add to their number greatly everywhere they went. Now Satan's, tr Satan's tragedy becomes God's triumph. A Romanian pastor shared this experience in, in Acts with me in a way that came alive for me when I looked at his story. I want to share his story with you. He was a guy who understood what they experienced in Acts, persecution. He was beaten uh, on several occasions, and he actually was uh, persecuted so severely that he said, you know, that they're going to kill me. So he put the affairs of his house in order, and he went in for his interrogation. He kissed his wife. This was his last time to see her in his mind. So he goes in, and, and let me give you his reflections on the interrogation. He says, he's responding to the, to the interrogator. He says, now here is how it works, sir. You know that my sermons are on tape all over the country. When you shoot me or crush me, whichever way you choose, you only sprinkle my sermons with my blood. Everybody who has a tape of one of my sermons will pick it up and say, I had better listen again. This man died for what he preaches. Sir, my sermons will speak 10 times louder after you kill me and because you kill me. In fact, I will conquer this country for God because you kill me. Go on and do it. Mic drop. After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. <laughs> Don't you love that? After I said this, the interrogator sent me home. Now, he continues to reflect on this. He says, another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine said, we know that Mr. Son would love to be a martyr, but we are not that foolish to fulfill his wish. <laughs> They're like, we're not falling into his trap. We're not going to kill him. No way. Now, he continues, I stopped to consider the meaning of that statement. I remembered how for many years I had been afraid of dying. I had kept a low profile because I wanted badly to live. I had wasted my life in inactivity. But now that I had placed my life on the altar and decided I was ready to die for the gospel, they were telling me they would not kill me. So then he closes with this. He says, I could go wherever I wanted in the country and preach whatever I wanted, knowing I was safe. As long as I tried to save my life, I was losing it. Now that I was willing to lose it, I found it. New City, if we would lay our lives down and surrender, and joyfully surrender, and, and stop just trying to keep a low profile, play it safe, waste our life with inactivity and we come and we joyfully surrender and say, I have the word of God. 
I have the Spirit of God, and I'm going to go and make disciples to all the nations, trusting that in ordinary people an extraordinary God shows up because ordinary people, ordinary people, He's extraordinary. And when ordinary people surrender and say, you got to show up, I'm weak, but in my weakness, your power is made perfect. And so I'm going to trust that you're going to show up. We stop fearing man. You see, I, I grew a little closer in learning to not fear men. I still have to apply it every day. When I was a freshman at UVA and I was a red shirt freshman walk-on on the football team in case football's not your world. That, that's the opposite of like a highly valued person. <laughs> I was just down here. Like the tackling dummies cost more than I did to them. And, and I was also at the same time, I had the distinction of being a pledge in a fraternity. And for those of you that aren't in the Greek world, um, they don't treat pledges like kings. Uh, you are the lowest subspecies of life. And so I had these two wonderful experiences going on. And then, like, everybody at UVA just seems smart. And I was like, oh, these people are smart. And so I'm just struggling on all fronts. And so I had to get away so that the, the fraternity brothers and the football guys couldn't find me. And, and so what I did is I said, you know, I'm going to go to the cemetery because no one else is going in the cemetery. They're, they're like, that place is weird. So I'd go to the cemetery that was right on campus. I'd walk around and look at the gravestones there. And someone would say, you know, professor of physics, um, CEO of, of whatever, different tombstones that were there. And I came on one, I said, whoa. And I, could, I, was, I was transfixed. I couldn't move. And it said, he feared man so little because he feared God so much. That's what happened in Antioch. A group of ordinary people learned to fear man so little because their fear, their awe, their worship, their joy in God was so full, was so complete that the fear of man just, it, it began to go away. And what they began to experience was that their tragedies were just opportunity for God's triumph. The more tragedy, the more opportunity for God's triumph in their life. Now, some of you say, yeah, but Pastor Stephen, what if I don't feel or see or experience any triumph in my life? What if it's just all tragedy? What if Romanian pastor guy got his head cut off and we didn't even hear that from him? What if UVA lost again in the first round this year? See, I'm a UVA fan. I had to slip that in. See, worst to first. You know, last year was arguably the worst loss in sporting history that my Cavaliers suffered. We were the number one overall seed in the tournament. We lose to the 16th seed. Never happened. Uh, this year, it looked like we were going to do it again in the first round and go out to Gardner-Webb. But then this remarkable run came on, and they actually won the national championship, and it was glorious triumph. But, but what if they lost in the first round again? And, and it's another tragedy of, of epic proportions. And, and some of you are like, that's my story. I mean, I'm living that out. It's just one, uh, it's, it's Shawshank Redemption. You know, I'm, I'm Andy. I'm in the path of the hurricane forever. And the thing won't 
go away. What do I do? Well, well, here's what I would encourage you to do. First of all, begin to reason like Abraham. Because when Abraham was facing what felt like a tragedy, I've got to got to offer up my son? What in the world? Well, Hebrews eleven nineteen 19 says, Abraham began to reason according to a resurrection. Even if this happens, God has the power to resurrect him from the dead. And so physical sickness, things that we're facing, we begin to go, God can resurrect me. And it may be here on earth, or it may be on the other side of the Jordan when we cross home. So sometimes we have to reason according to the resurrection, or, or sometimes we have to reason like Paul. In Philippians 1.21, he says, to live is Christ. To die is gain. What do you do with a person who lives like that? You, uh, you can't, they can't be touched. To live is Christ, kill me and I'm even better off. I get a whole, the world I've been dreaming of. If that happens, I'm better off. Sickness can't touch a person like that. Or, or maybe we need to reason like Job in chapter 38, when God goes to Job and he says, hey, Job, were, were you here when I formed Mount Everest? Were, were you here when, when I put the Colorado River in place? No, you weren't, were you? So, button it. That's Job 38. Or maybe we need to reason like James. James 1, 2 through 4. Memorize this one. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Consider it pure joy, really? Because this does, this does not feel like pure joy. In any, this doesn't look like pure joy to me. This feels like pure other things I could describe, but not pure joy. The Holy Spirit begins to transform how we view tragedy. And what we say is, it becomes a matter of when, not if, my tragedy becomes God's triumph. It's when, not if. Not an ounce of our tragedy will be wasted in the economy of God. Not an ounce. And so, if God has allowed tragedy into the recipe of my life, the entree that God is cooking up is going to turn out well because taste and see that the Lord is good. And if he's allowed tragedy into the recipe of my life, the entree is gonna turn out. It's going to be good because he's a master chef and he knows what he's doing. See, our friend Maria taught us this in San Diego. She suffered greatly. Uh, her, her son, her husband died with the birth of her second son. She was a single mom, had Parkinson's terribly. We never saw her out of the bed. We met her at 86 and never saw her out of the bed. And osteoporosis so bad. And one day we were going through a tragedy in our life. And she said, you know what this tragedy is like? And she said, it's like buttermilk. I said, what? She said, yeah, 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 it's like buttermilk. Uh, she said, have you ever looked at the fruit of the Spirit? She said, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, all these amazing things. And then you get to long-suffering. <laughs> Who wants that? We try to translate it as patience because we don't even like that word, long-suffering. But she said, you know, it's long-suffering. She said, it's like buttermilk. Have you ever had buttermilk pancakes? Oh, yeah, I love buttermilk pancakes. Have you ever... Uh, taking the buttermilk and just taking a swig. No, I don't do that. Not very good when I do that. But she said, what about when you mix it with all the other ingredients 
And then those buttermilk pancakes come out. Ooh, son. Buttermilk pancakes, tasty. Buttermilk, not so tasty. When God gets involved and takes the buttermilk that's happening in your life and mixes it together with the fruit of his spirit, the love and the joy and the peace and the pain, and he brings it all together, he says, I'm a master chef and I know what I'm doing and I don't waste tragedy in your life and I'm gonna redeem it. You see, Saul was the buttermilk for those who were scattered by persecution. Saul was the one and, and, and according to this, Saul comes along. He's the one who persecutes the Christians. Now watch what happens. Verses 21 through 26. Let's pull these up. The Lord's hand was with them as Saul the buttermilk came in and stirred it up. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Ann. Barnabas, you got to go check this out. You won't believe this. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done in ordinary people, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church, and again, a great number of people believed and were added to their number. Now, I'm going to give you a Stephen translation. This isn't in here, but this is how I'm imagining the conversation goes with Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas goes up to Saul, and Barnabas says, um, Saul, uh, I don't, this is awkward. I don't really know how to, I don't know how to say this. Um, do you remember the guy in Jerusalem where um, there were stones and there were a bunch of people, and um, I don't, you were standing around there, Barnabas, you can say it. The guy that I murdered. Yeah, yeah, that, that guy. Um, Stephen, yeah, remember him? Well, guess what? God took what you did, and I know it was, it's hard to even remember this memory, but God took what you did, and, and he's blowing up the church. All those people that watched it and that saw it and saw everything. Well, guess what? They, you tried to shut them up, but you couldn't. And Jesus is more powerful than you. And he took all these people that you were trying to kill and he sent them over here to Antioch. And, and you won't even believe what's going on. And I went, I saw it. There's people coming to know Jesus just by the hundreds. It's an unbelievable work of God. And guess what you did this, Saul? Thanks for what you did. You, you contributed to this. Jesus, you gotta, you gotta come see this. Think about this script. Satan's guy was actually God's double agent. And God says, he may be your guy for a moment, but I'm actually using you to use him to work according to my purposes in the world. And so he goes in and he says, your tragedy is gonna be my triumph. And so Acts chapter seven leads to Acts chapter eight, and they all believed, and there was this incredible work of God. He says, Satan, you can stick this in your pipe and smoke it. Because the very guy that was your guy to take out the church is now going to Antioch, and get this, they are going to be the church that sends out Paul to, to become the greatest missionary force in the history of Christianity. The very people that were gonna kill him are the ones who send him out and they become a missionary sending force, this church in Antioch. 
And so they send out more missionaries than any other church we've known of and become the absolute sending force in the world. What an amazing script. You can't write this stuff. God is doing this. So he takes our tragedy, he turns it into triumph. And here's the second point. Here's what an, what an extraordinary God does. He takes division and he turns it into unity. Now watch how God does this. It's an amazing run. He takes full of a place filled with division, sin. Um, we, we begin to make decisions like Adam and Eve did where we, we begin to think about ourselves. Tower of Babel happens, make a name for ourselves. We start making distinctions based off skin color and how much money you make and class and all these different things. And then verses 19 and 20, we see that this new thing was happening where it wasn't based on skin color or race or anything like that. Look at what happens. They began spreading the word, but the first group does it only among the Jews. That means as they got going, they were still bound by these old religiosity and racism was still playing into their worldview. But look at what happens in verse 20. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. So they began to cross racial lines and ethnic lines and, and religious lines. They, they began to cross all these different lines and to spread the gospel indiscriminately. Now, now let me tell you about Antioch. Let me tell you about what they were stepping into. Antioch itself was built by a guy named Seleucus. Seleucus was one of Alexander the Great's generals. He built the city in honor of his father, whose name was Antiochus. And this city was a huge multi-ethnic city and they knew it was going to be as they were building the city. Like most other cities, they built a wall around the exterior perimeter. That was for protection from the outside. But here's what they knew about Antioch. They said, there's going to be fighting from within. And so we know from archeology, span they built 18 different wall interior walls and these were ethnic quarters that were established here's why because Antioch was placed in such a position in Syria that you had obviously lots of Romans and Greeks but due to its proximity to Africa you had Africans who were coming in due to its proximity to China you had Persians you had all different groups of Indians and Chinese coming in. And then you also had the Jewish people who were moving in from Israel. So they knew this is going to be a multi-ethnic city. And here's the way the world operated at the time. They said, here's what we know. When they come in, these racial groups are not going to get along. And as they come in, there's a problem in the marketplace. One group's gonna start fighting with the other. We've got to have the ability to lock down interior portions of the city. That's how the world operates. Is it, we better plan for it. There's really nothing we can do to stop it. This is how it's gonna happen until the Christians show up. And they begin sharing the gospel indiscriminately, not to Jews only, but to Greeks also, and the walls come tumbling down. They start crossing racial and ethnic lines because they say, I have the word of God and the spirit of God, and I'm going to make disciples of all the nations. 
And what I'm going to do is I'm going to love my neighbors and I'm going to serve my neighbors and I'm going to love my neighbors and I'm going to serve my neighbors and I don't care what they look like and I don't care how much money they make and I don't care how educated they are and I'm going to love and I'm going to serve and we're going to worship together and a whole new thing formed in Antioch. So much so that verse 26 happens. This is astonishing. They had to create a new name for this community. They couldn't control it. They couldn't understand it. They said, we've got to get, come up with a new name. So they said it was first at Antioch that we're going to call them Christians, which means what? Belonging to Christ. These people belong to Jesus because when I read about Jesus, he goes to Samaritans, he goes to Greeks, he goes to the woman at the well. He's indiscriminate in his love. They said, they are like him. They belong to him. What if we did this at New City? What if we began to step into this kind of reality? And you know it happened in Antioch because if you read later in Acts 13, one, this multi-ethnic church has leaders from all over the world. They have three different continents and four different racial groups among the leaders in Acts 13.1. What if this happened here at New City? What if the ordinary divisions met an extraordinary unity in Christ? Do you know that in our city, one in two schools are still segregated in Charlotte? Do you know that at right now, there's the greatest disparity between white home ownership and black home ownership since 1900? When we found out about that movement, said, that's our industry. We actually have to do something about that. And so we're forming this initiative called Communidad, where we're beginning to think through how that can change. How do we see these things change? Man, I'm excited about this new campus we have coming up at New City in Idlewild, a diverse neighborhood of the city. What a joy for us to, to step in with the word of God and the spirit of God and lead and to see what God is going to do because ordinary people, extraordinary God, and he's gonna turn division into unity. Now, finally, here's the last thing he's gonna do. Now, let me take that back. This is the last thing we're going to look at this morning. It is not the last thing God is going to do. But he is going to turn our hurt into hope. This is who he is. He takes the places that hurt in our life and he fills them with hope. One place of hurt that showed up in our text and our story is in verses 27 and 28. You find out that, that there's a prophecy coming about a famine. And as famine begins to step into the land, uh, they hear about it in Antioch. And then verse 29 happens. They say the disciples, as each one was able, that's the key phrase, as each one was able, decided to provide help. How does God want to help the hurting places in Charlotte? Through us. We're his plan. And he says, I know they're ordinary, but I'm extraordinary. And I'm going to give ordinary people my extraordinary presence is what God says. And so through us, as each one was able, we begin to step into the hurting places on our block, on our, in our neighborhood, in our cubicles, at our places of work. And we say, as each one was able, I'm going to believe in an extraordinary God to use me to be the hope for the world. Because Jesus is the hope of the world and he is in me. Now, one area we found this uh, to step into a movement was through Movement Day. 
uh, at Movement Day, Nicole Taylor, we know Nicole, she shared about the vulnerable kids in our city. And as she continued to share, there's over 500 vulnerable kids who are in the foster system right now in Charlotte. And as Casey and Amay and, and I and some other leaders at Movement just began to reflect on that, we left saying, we've got to do something about that. We can't solve the whole thing, but maybe we begin to move the needle and who knows what God's going to do. And so we had Bo and Jen and Nicole come out to Movement and share with our company. And as they did, it was awesome to see the lights going on for people. And so we had a lunch for people. And out of that, 21 people said, oh, you know what I could do? I could be a part of mentoring a foster child. And then 17 people said, oh, you know what I could do? The, the social workers who are struggling to come alongside these kids, and different, we're gonna bless them. We're gonna be a, a light to them. And then we had 11 people say, fostering? I'm, I mean, I'm open to that. I wanna hear more about that. We didn't solve the whole problem, but we said, as each one was able, I'm gonna do something and I'm gonna step in and trust that an extraordinary God is gonna begin to use this. And so pray for that. That's actually happening this week. But even more than just that experience, what about if all of us on our streets, at our places of work, here at New City and beyond began to say, God, I surrender. I'm yours, take me, every part of me, each one as he was able, and we begin to trust that extraordinary things are gonna happen. Now, here's the question. What powers this? It's the last verse in our text, verse 21. This is the key. The Lord's hand was with them. The Lord's hand was, this, was with them. Not by my might, not by my power, by the Lord's power, by the Lord's strength. This is what we do this with, the Lord's hand, the righteous right hand of God. And some of you say, but how can I have confidence that the Lord will be with me? How do I know that God's gonna step out with me as I step into this? Well, here's how you know, because of the gospel. Hear the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, there was only one extraordinary person who lived in human history and his name was Jesus Christ. The rest of us are ordinary people. But there was one extraordinary man who lived whose name was Jesus Christ, and he faced an extraordinary death where on the cross he was willing to endure everything that you and I were supposed to endure. Jesus said, I'll take it for them. I'll stand in their place. And then three days later, there was an extraordinary thing that happened. The stone was rolled away. And in an extraordinary way, the Spirit of God was poured out through his resurrection presence. And for all those who are willing to say, I'm with him. I've put my faith in him. I've put my trust in him. I'm ordinary, but he's and I'm with him and he's with me. And so when we go to work tomorrow, we go with the extraordinary presence of Jesus Christ. The Lord's hand is with us. It's guaranteed because of the cross and because of the resurrection. And so I wanna pray that over you right now. I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to picture those places of hurt becoming places of hope. I want you to picture that tragedy that you find yourself in right now, turning into a place of God's triumph in your life. I want you to picture those relationships that feel divided that feel broken. I want you to picture the spirit of the living God coming over them and bringing a supernatural unity among that relationship right now that just feels so broken. Maybe it's a marriage. 
Maybe it's a, a good friend that is no longer a good friend. And, and Father, I'm praying right now for an unleashing of your spirit, an extraordinary God to pour out your extraordinary unity and triumph because you tell us that you always lead us in triumphal procession so that in all things, at all times, having all that we need, we will abound. And so Father, right now, I pray for my friends, my sisters, my brothers. We need your spirit poured out so that tragedy becomes your triumph, so that the division in our life experiences your unity and the hurt becomes hope. For those of you that are here this morning as we continue to pray, some of you are, are feeling disconnected from God and you're feeling far from God and, and, and yet you made it here to church this morning. And this morning is not about you joining a church. This morning is about you experiencing the power of an extraordinary God, taking those places of tragedy in your life and beginning a triumph. And so I wanna encourage you to take the first step of faith. Give, give your, your trust to Jesus and watch what he can do in your life. And so if that's you right now, I want you to just give your heart to him and pray with me now. Jesus, I trust you. I'm scared, but I trust you. And I'm hurting, and I need your hope. Fill me with your joy. Fill me with your courage. Fill me with your spirit to make me a new person, full of life and hope and joy. Thank you, Jesus, for coming into my life, for connecting me to God. Amen.